Hey friends, thanks for tuning in to the Church Planner Podcast. Before we started today, wanted to tell you about a really special opportunity. Our friends at the Micro Church Conference put on by Brave Future, um, happening April 18th through the 20th in Kansas City. This is for all of you who are wondering what is a new kind of paradigm for missional church planting and church multiplication through smaller expressions of church, what they call rediscovering the smaller way. It's happening April 18th through the 20th. Kansas City is being hosted by Kansas City Underground. It's going to be a great weekend. And they've given us four free registrations to give away. Normally the price is $90, but we will get you into the conference for free. We have four of those. What you can do to enter is go on our Instagram at Church Planter Podcast. And there you'll find um, a, a DM button. Click that DM button. Send us a DM with your email on it and your name and where you serve. So email, name, where you serve, and you'll be entered to win one of four micro church conference registrations. You just get yourself to Kansas City and uh, you can be there and learn a ton from our friends at Brave Futures. Hope you enjoy the show today. The illustrious Jabba bids you welcome. <laughs> I'm going to regret this. I'm Pete Mitchell. He's Peyton Jones. And this is the Church Planner Podcast, brought to you by Church Planner Magazine. You know, when I have a large project at home, sometimes it makes sense to do it by myself. At other times, I actually save money in the long term and have a much better solution if I use an expert. It's really not that much different with church planning. Church planners who focus on building their core team and actually planting the church and partner with portability experts like Portable Church Industries hit the ground running. Yes, you may have to raise more funds up front, but let me tell you something. If I could go back in a time machine and do one thing different in all the churches that I planted, I would go back and have invested that money in Portable Church and all of the super cool kit that they give you to make the volunteers and their lives much, much easier. Trust me, your volunteers will feel invested in, and they're going to give you more of what they got. And that time where people are setting up is going to be a time where it sets the atmosphere for you to thrive. If you're thinking about launching in the next 6 to 36 months, we encourage you to check them out at PortableChurch.com. Bibles to Job chapter 1. Book of Job chapter 1. Very possibly the first piece of scripture scholars say ever written. Very fittingly, it's a book about suffering. It's a book about man trying to understand why is there so much suffering? Why is this happening to me? In the book of Job, verse 1, it says, There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright. One who feared God and shunned evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Also his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. 
And his sons would go and feast in their houses, each on his appointed day. And would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So it was when the days of feasting had run their course that Job would send and sanctify them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons and daughters have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And thus Job did regularly. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking back and forth in it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. So Satan answered the Lord and says, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them when the Sabians raided them and took them away. Indeed, they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands, raided the camels, and took them away, yes, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell to the ground, and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this, Job did not sin, nor charge God with wrong. For those of you with short attention spans, bear with me in the first few verses of chapter 2. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth. A blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. And still, he holds fast to his integrity. Although 
you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. So Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, yes. All that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and flesh and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he's in your hand. Spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took for himself a potsherd with which to scrape himself while he sat in the midst of the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God? And shall we not accept adversity? And all this, Job did not sin with his lips. I'd like to give you this morning very briefly an overview of the book of Job, which is not an easy thing to do. Surely we all know the story. We know the gist. We know the beginning. We know there's a whole bunch of talking in the middle. And then we know in the end, everything ends up okay. God speaks, tells everyone to shut up, and then gives Job everything back. But Job is packed, crammed, full of wisdom. One famous Puritan preacher took his congregation through the book of Job in 30 years. How would you like to be in his congregation? You'd be one of the six people left in it by the end of that time. But Job is found in the portion of Scripture we call the wisdom literature. And it's found in the wisdom literature because really, it shows us very practically that there is a need in our lives for the wisdom of God. You see, there's fleshly wisdom. There's a way that you and I reason about things that isn't the way that God reasons about things. And what the book of Job is, is it's a book about a guy who, like you and I, has problems. And in fact, some of these problems, they don't just spend themselves nicely and evenly, thinly spread over the course of his lives, but when it rains, it pours sometimes. Like the Radfords will tell you after their past week. That trial after trial after trial can come like Job's messengers, the expression is in America, right on the heel of each other. And life can very oftentimes, even to a Christian, it can seem very random. It seems aimless or meaningless. Even God Himself says, you incited me against Him without cause. And when we go through periods of suffering in our lives, very oftentimes we think, this is happening without cause. There's no rhyme or reason. These trials come upon my life like a hurricane. Oh, Job knew a hurricane. It took his kids. Or you feel like your trials are like bandits coming and stealing away every bit of joy that you have. What the book of Job shows is after all of Job's talking, after all of his reasoning, it shows the breakdown of human wisdom when you can't figure it out. Sometimes you can't, can you? This side of heaven, there's no explanation. And Job spends the whole entire span of this book trying to figure it out. And just in the book itself, there is a sermon when God comes at the end and says, don't. Don't. Don't even try, Job. James Dobson years ago sold a book by the title alone. Became one of the best-selling Christian books in America, When God Doesn't Make Sense. I don't know about you, but that's a lot. 
to me. It was a lot to Job. God didn't make sense. And very often times in our life, it's all too true. From our perspective, from our limited human reason, God and what He's doing doesn't seem to make sense. And Job found this as he found himself on the ground sputtering out dust from his mouth because he hit it so hard. Herman Melville years ago wrote a book, a little short story. It wasn't Moby Dick. But Herman Melville loves ships and stories about men out at sea. And he tells one story about a surgeon, a ship surgeon, who when one of the, the crew members falls ill and he needs an operation because his, he's got a bad stomach, the surgeon takes him, lays him out on the table, and he's got attendants, young surgical attendants, and he's trying to teach them all the glories of surgery. This is his opportunity. He's a gifted, brilliant surgeon. And he begins to cut the man up. And then he begins to take out his stomach. And he begins to see, see this is why this man was like this. And this is what happened. And look at his stomach. Do you see the disease process here? You see this inflammation over here caused this over here. And as he's taking the man's organs apart, the students are looking on in horror. Because the man's been dead for about 25 minutes. Many people think that sometimes God is like that surgeon, that he loses all sight of his patience in the midst of the process. You look at the surgeon and you think, no good can come out of this. Nothing can happen. But one thing Job did from the very beginning, he got it right. I don't know if you realize that Job, more than anyone else in Scripture, is probably the most amazing man in the Bible. He loses everything right away. And he doesn't go through all of the, 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 the normal stages of grief and loss and mourning. It seems like immediately, because his faith is so strong, there is no one like him, God says, on the face of the earth. He immediately goes into acceptance. He accepts it. And he tells his wife, shall we accept all these great things that God gave us? I was the most powerful man in all of the East. And he asks his wife, you foolish woman, yeah, we accept all these great things. You didn't have any problem with those. God blessing us left and right. Shall we not, in the same heart, and with the same readiness, accept hardship? But you look at Job a few days later. Seven days later, when his friends are there. And he's not accepting it so easily anymore. One of the interesting things about people when they grieve, when they grieve loss, is that they go through various stages. There's five stages of mourning loss. And the last one, they say, is acceptance. But they've revised that. They've said there's no logic. There's no rhyme or reason. Sometimes acceptance comes in the beginning. And then comes the anger. And then comes the bargaining with God. And then comes, and they've, they've mishmashed them. Because that's how people suffer. And seven days later, Job isn't in this acceptance phase anymore. He's finding himself trying to figure it out, but he didn't get there on his own. You see, it all started when his three well-meaning friends come up to him and they try to help him. They try to figure it out for him. You see, what all of his friends come up to do is they sit in the dust and they say, Job, we care about you, Job. Maybe this is happening in your life because you've got some sin. Maybe, Job, this is happening in your life because you've done such and such. Maybe this is happening in your life because there's something you haven't realized. And Job begins to question based on this. You see, his friends weren't accepting of it. They weren't accepting that maybe this was Job's apportioned lot at this time, at this period, at this point in his life. You see, very oftentimes as preachers, we're careful to tell people 
If you come to Christ, that doesn't mean all your problems go away. And we're careful not to tell them, come to Jesus and He'll take care of all your problems and life will be sweet and wonderful all the time. We don't tell people that because it's not true. But like Job's friends, sometimes we see people going through suffering and we scratch our heads and we say, that's just not right. Why is that happening? And we start banging our heads up against the wall, trying to figure it out, coming up with our theories, telling our friends, this is what I think is happening. And we confuse them. Job became confused. You see, sometimes when people suffer, even though we know come to Christ and all your problems aren't going to go away, sometimes still we live that way. And when someone does suffer, we don't let them do it. If you were walking with God, this wouldn't have happened. You wouldn't have this problem. So they told Job. We become dismayed. We try to explain it. Peter said this. When you find yourselves in all these trials and all these things, he said, don't be dismayed. Don't be dismayed. As if something strange were happening to you. You see, Job finds himself in this book. At times he says, if only God would come down and answer me. In a sense, he finds himself like Toto in The Wizard of Oz. He wants to go and rip back the curtain and see the wizard pulling the gears and why is he doing this and why is he doing that? But it doesn't happen. That veil stays there throughout the entire book up until the last few chapters. And it's not until the end that he realizes that God had a plan. But believer this morning, no matter where you're at in life this morning, God has a plan. Job thought that God had abandoned him. And it's easy. That can be the first thing we think. This doesn't gel with the love of God in my life. This doesn't gel with what I was told when I believed in Christ. Not only did God have a plan, but Satan had a plan. Do you notice that in every hardship and every trial, God has a plan just like Satan has a plan? Joseph realized it in hindsight. And very oftentimes it's in hindsight, like Job. Not till the end of the book does he see that there was this conversation in heaven that took place. When he was in the midst of it, he wanted to die. But what he realizes later is that Satan had a plan. And God had a plan. Joseph in hindsight says, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. Satan means this for evil. He wants to bring out the very worst in Job. But God wants to bring out the very best in Job. And every single trial you and I have, and everything we go through, has a huge potential for good, and a huge potential for evil. Automatically we hear this and we... We think, well, there I go. There's me. Well, I know who got the upper hand in that plan. I know whose plan went ahead in my life. Surely it wasn't God's. It must have been Satan's. Because I've made an absolute mess of this. My friend, there's just as much potential for good even when you fail. Because, you know, and I don't know if you noticed it, but Job failed. It's only in the first two chapters. And all this, Job did not sin, it says in the first little section. Then in the second section, and all this, after he got his body struck, Job did not sin. And then it never says that again. Because Job did sin later. There are things that Job says to God in this book. I don't know about you. But you think, you don't say things like that to God. You just don't, you, you don't say those kind of things. God has to rebuke him at the end. 
It's not that God's saying you can't question, you can't wonder why I do things. But Satan had a plan, and it was the same plan he had for Peter. Simon, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. You know what it means to sift something? It means to take a strainer and to put that person on that strainer and to sift every bit of grace and goodness out of them. To completely empty them. It means to separate. To separate the good from the bad. That's what you do when you sift the wheat. He wants to grind you to powder, to dust. And Job wouldn't have argued at this point with that. But you know what? It seems in a sense like Satan's sifting process was completed in Job's life. You see, that's Satan's business. He's in the people sifting business. And he's got time. And he knows the ways to do it. He knows how to do it in my life, and he knows how to do it in your life. And Job failed. It looks at a certain point in this book as if after Job strikes his body, Satan says, skin for skin. You strike him. Strike he himself. Take his health. And he'll fail, God. He will fail you. And it looks as if God has lost. God's not done. He's not done. Even in the midst of some of Job's failure, he's not done. He's not done in you either. No matter where you are this morning, God's not done with you. You can oftentimes look in various trials and various situations as if your life is over. You've come to the dead end. You've come to the box canyon and there's no way out. There was a hedge once around Job, Satan says, but now Job thinks that there's not a hedge anymore, but prison bars. It's all over. Imagine if you were Job. Imagine right now this morning, you lose everyone you love. Your wife turns against you. You lose your property. You lose your position. You lose your job. You lose everything. And it's all gone. How are you going to feel in the midst of that? Imagine that. Life's over, isn't it? Might as well die, Job says. Got nothing more. Just suffering. Oh, and then you get cancer on top of it. And it's probably terminal. And it's going to be a long process. Maybe you have cancer. Maybe you're sick. Maybe you're, you're barren. Maybe you've lost your job. Maybe your marriage situation isn't what you'd have it to be. And this morning it seems like your life is over. It seems like things will never be the same again. And maybe that's what you've said to yourself. Things will never be the same again. And the pain in that hurts. And it bites and it cuts. In America, there's a picture we have. It's a famous picture. It's called The Boulevard of Broken Dreams. And it's based on an old painting of a 1930s diner. And there it's got the soda jerk and he's, he's pouring a, a, a little drink for someone. And there's some guy leaning over, sitting at one of the stools, leaning over the diner counter with his cup of coffee. Well, there's been a take on this famous picture. The remake of this picture is called The Boulevard of Broken Dreams. Because in the place of each one of those people, they put a famous person whose life turned out tragic. The soda jerk is James Dean. Humphrey Bogart's hunched over that counter. Across from him, as the counter looms around, is Marilyn Monroe and a few other figures. The boulevard of broken dreams. People whose lives ended tragically. People whose lives seemed like it would never be the same again. 
And they've got that forlorn look in their eyes, kind of looking off, peering into nothing, peering into space. But I tell you what, if there's a boulevard of broken dreams, if there's a skill shot taken and hung on the wall in the kingdom of heaven, I know who's going to be sitting in that diner. Job for one. Peter. Joseph. Probably Moses. You see, these were four men who thought that their lives were over. These were men that... I mean, Job isn't alone in the Bible. Look at Peter. Peter denies the Lord. Lord, I never will. He does. End of story. He denies Him. Christ dies. Next thing you know, Peter's out there fishing. His days of apostleship are gone in his own eyes. And Jesus has to tell him, tell my disciples and Peter what you've seen, that I've risen. Tell Peter too. Peter thought, it's done. I will never be able to preach the gospel. I will never be able to live down what I've done. How about Moses? Forty years old, he lost everything. His position, his family, his promise of the future. Everything. And for the next 40 years of his life, he ends up in a desert somewhere. How about Joseph? Great dreams. Horrible realities. He ends up in a prison. You see, there are men that, like you, have been where you are. You see, the Bible, praise God, does not stop with Job. There are other men that have been in the dungeon of despair. John Bunyan himself. A man who, if anyone thought, my life's over, it would have been him. But he writes Pilgrim's Progress in the midst of that dungeon. And out of his own depression, his own despair, his own gloom, do you think that it wasn't for reason that John Bunyan writes about Christian going into a dungeon and giving up all hope for life? Do you think that's not autobiographical? Do you think that he didn't want to die and thought this was the end of the road? And yet, look at that book. It's a best-selling book of all time outside of the Bible. You're not alone, my friend. God has a way of taking people that think that the last chapter has just been written in the book of their life. And rather than showing them that they've ended up somewhere, tells them, no, you're just starting out. And this is the turning point. If you were to go into that boulevard of broken dreams, and you were to ask Moses and Job, sit across the counter with a cup of coffee from Joseph, from Peter, and ask them, what did you learn? What did you learn from these things? Job, what can you tell me? Joseph, what can you share with me? I think more than anything, they would tell you that God changed their attitude towards failure. One man in America said this, nobody learns anything from success. The only thing we learn from is failure. I'll tell you what came out of Job on the other end of this whole experience. Unless Job had failed, unless he had asked those questions, unless he had been bold enough to boldly go where no man had gone before in his pain and his doubt and despair, you and I and millions of others would never have been blessed through what he went through. Job never would have gotten the wisdom that he got. This failure that God took him through prepared him for an even greater triumph. Prepared him for the end of his life. You see, failure does prepare us for triumph. It draws us from our imagined strength to our real strengths. To depend on that which truly gives us strength. A boxer will tell you the same. Those of you that have ever spoken to a famous boxer 
and asked him, what, what did you do? And how, how, what were turning points? What did you learn from? A boxer will always look at you and tell you, it was such and such fight. When I got knocked out by so-and-so. You're the great so-and-so. Hey, what are you talking about when you got knocked out? That was your best training? And a fighter will always tell you that his best training was when he got beaten. Because that was what made him change his style. That's what made him change his technique. That's what gave him strategy. That's what caused him to change, to look at himself, to assess, what did I do wrong? And how can I be better? John Keats wrote this years ago. He says, albeit failure in any cause produces a correspondent misery in the soul, yet is, in a sense, the highway to success, inasmuch as every discovery of what is false leads us to seek earnestly after what is true. And every fresh experience points out some form of error which we shall afterwards carefully look for. In your hardships, you will fail. Like Job, like Peter, like Moses, you will fail. You will do stupid things. Oh Lord, I never will, said Peter. Though all of them do, I never will, Lord. You will fail in your prayer. You will fail in your witness. You will fail in your daily readings. You will fail in everything that you should be clinging on to. The only thing you will not fail to do is fail. But I looked through my Bible the other day. In fact, in preparing for this message, I started to look through my concordance for the word failure. We talk about people as being failures, don't we? You know, you don't find that in the Bible. I looked through my concordance literally to see, does God ever once describe a person's life as a failure? Does He use that word? I'm a failure, people say. That's usually the last step before suicide. I'm a failure. But God never uses that. I read a quote that said, the only failure is someone who didn't cash in on the experience. That's true failure. You didn't cash in on the experience. You see, to God, there's no such thing as a failure. And Job cashed in. We call this again wisdom literature. Because Job, in the midst of it, in hindsight, was able to go back and to write with a wisdom he never possessed before. And to give insights that maybe he didn't speak originally. I know for a fact Job and his buddies didn't speak in poetical form to each other. But it was inspired of God. The gist of the conversations, I'm sure, were there. But now Job's able to write now about it with an insight. He's able to show the limits of human wisdom. And he's able to give us good wisdom. Remember that reading we had? Job 28. Where is wisdom found, Job says? If only I had the tools to understand what I'm going through. If only I knew, how does a man understand these random events in his life? Surely, he says, there's a hole in the ground. Men, they build these, they, they go down to mine shafts. They build, they prop up the earth so it doesn't cave in on them. They plug up the dams and the streams. They do all kinds of things. They get away from everyone else and they plummet down into the depths of the earth where no one else has gone, he says. They swing back and forth in ropes and caverns under the depths of the earth for gold and silver. And yet wisdom, it's worth more than that. 
What does a man have to do to get wisdom? Job says, my friend, it's the same to go down deep in the pit. You see, what Job was saying is there is a price for wisdom. In hindsight, Job is writing. He almost begs the question, this is what you have to do to gain wisdom. You got to go down in the pit. And when you come up, you come up with something much richer than rubies, gold, silver, or diamonds. Talk to someone who's been in the pit. I'll tell you, they wouldn't trade what they gained, the wisdom that they gained from that experience for the world. If you go to Job, there he is in the last chapter, he's sitting on his little balcony, drinking, sipping his iced tea, looking out over everything that he owns. Maybe he's thinking about his children that were lost, that will never be replaced, though he had more children. Maybe the specific individuals, he misses their smile or he misses that. But you ask him, Job, would you trade it? Would you go back? Not on your life, he'd say. But Job, you had so much pain. You had so much hardship. Uh Uh-uh. Not on your life. I would never go back for anything. And the fact he took the time to pen the book proves it. You see, my friend, there is a price for wisdom. And it will cost you. It may cost you time. It may cost you pain. It may cost you more than you're willing to pay. One man said this. Often does the Christian soldier win the day, even when he's been wounded in the fight. My friend, fight it out. You may be wounded now, and you may for years have the scars to prove it like Job, but you stay in and you fight it out. Because what Job would tell you, sitting across the table, and that boulevard of broken heavenly dreams, as he would sit there and he would look at you and he'd say, wait till the end of the story. If I close my Bible at chapter 2, curse God and die, you old man. And Job in chapter 3 saying, I want to die now. If I close my Bible at that point in the story, if nothing else, I could relate. I could say, well, when I'm going through hard times, I understand, but the end of the book it tells me it only lasts for a time you see god knew what he would do with each one of these men joseph job peter it only lasted for a short while it didn't last forever it wasn't the end of the story whatever you're going through this morning god knows what he's doing and he knows when enough is enough maybe you're saying god it's enough now stop Remember Paul and his thorn? When I get a thorn in my hand and when you get I'm a baby when I get hurt, but if I get a thorn in my hand, what's the first thing you do? You stop everything. A splinter. Ah, splinter! 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 You know, you can be like doing something incredibly macho, hauling logs, and then all of a sudden, you know, ah, you know, and you're, you're pointing everyone, I got a splinter, hold on, hold on. And you stop right there and you focus all of your energy on getting that splinter out, don't you? It's amazing. I mean, you're, 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 you've just been macho, you know, you've, you've been on top of the world. You get a thorn or a splinter, it stops everything. And you just focus all your energy on trying to get it out. That's what Paul did. God, it needs to come out now. Come on. God said no. It defied all logic. It defied all reason. Everyone knows the first thing you do with a thorn is you stop everything and you pull it out. You get it out right then. But his time wasn't done. If you have your Bibles and you'd like to turn, or you can just listen, 
I'd like to read to you something from Peter. I'm always amazed when I read the scriptures, especially the book of 1 Peter, to find out how autobiographical this book is. Almost everything that Peter writes in chapter 5 was learned by experience. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And Peter remembered that day when Jesus said to him, Peter, Satan has asked me for you. Oh, everything. Humble yourself, therefore, Peter says. I never will. He's learned his lesson. On the other side of the failure, on the other side of the experience, he knows now. He knows better. He says in verse 6, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time. In due time. That means pre-appointed time. That means it's on the schedule. It's on the calendar. It's fixed. God knows the date. Casting all your cares upon Him, for He cares for you. Be sober. Be vigilant. Go to sleep in your armor. Your enemy's working on you. He's got a plan. He's got a strategy. He wants to sift you. He walks around like a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith. Have faith. Knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in all the world. You're not the only one. I know for a fact this morning that some of you are sitting there going, Praise God! You're on the top. You woke up this morning and you said, Thank you dear for those eggs. Praise God. They were the, that was the best orange juice. Hallelujah I've ever had. And you're on the top of the mountain. But some of you this morning don't even want to eat. You just push it away. Your brotherhood in all the world. You don't know what the person next to you is going through. You don't know. I guarantee you there's probably someone, with the exception of one person in this room, there's someone going through something worse than you. And you're probably thinking, well, I must be that one. Well, guess what? There's only one in this room going through the worst. And you know what? That's not even true. Because Christ is in this room. And He has been through something far worse than you. He's like that football coach that says, I'll never make you do anything that I never had to do myself. I'll never take you through anything that I didn't or wouldn't go through myself. And He goes on to say, verse 10, But may the God of all grace, oh, even after you fail, Peter knew that God of grace because he failed miserably. The God of all grace. Who called us to His eternal glory by Christ Jesus after you have suffered a while. I don't like that part. And you don't like that part. After you have suffered a while. It makes it sound like that's all part of God's plan and you know what it is. After you have suffered a while. You see, that is God's plan. Sometimes for us, the plan of God is to suffer for a little while. Hold tight, Paul. I'm not done. Hold tight, Moses. Hold tight, Job. Because the odd thing about the book of Job is God's silent the entire time, isn't He? He's silent. I mean, He doesn't say anything. It's not like Job says something, then Eliphaz says something, and then all of a sudden God says something, and then Job says, well, God, that's interesting, but it's just God's silent. And God may be silent in your life right now. He may be absolutely silent. And you're misreading that as God being cold or callous or mean or indifferent to your pain. That's not the case. God knows the end. When He's done, Peter says, after a, you have suffered a while, will Himself perfect, 
establish, strengthen, and settle you. On the other side of that, God is going to make you something better. I could go into what each one of those four words means. The first one, for example, means to mend a torn net. To mend a torn net. After some of your trials, you're just torn. And Peter's using a fishing term. That God will come in and He'll mend you. He'll mend you stronger than you ever were. And my friend, that is the truth. It's never time to give up. As we say in America, it's always too soon to quit. My famous speech ever given by Sir Winston Churchill was the never give up. Why? Well, he's got the great ones, doesn't he? Their finest hour. Uh, that's a great, great speech. And then the blood, sweat, and tears speech. But his best speech was what they needed to hear. Three repeated phrases. Never give up. And then again. Never give up. And then the third time. Never give up. That was all he needed to say. And that's all I need to say this morning. Some years ago, I'm going to read you this. A young man for the legislature in a large state was badly swamped. He next entered business, failed, and spent 17 years of his life paying off the debts of a worthless partner. He was in love with a beautiful woman to whom he became engaged, and then she died. Re-entering politics, he ran for Congress and was badly defeated. He then tried to get an appointment to the United States Land Office, but failed. He became a candidate for the United States Senate and was badly defeated. Two years later, he was defeated again. One failure after another, bad failures, great setbacks. His name was Abraham Lincoln. Winston Churchill has a similar story. And to read you one quote from another great man, I hope you don't feel inundated by quotes, but this is my favorite president. You see, great men have always been men who fail time and time again. But they got up and they kept going. The person who succeeds is not the one who holds back fearing failure, nor the one who never fails, but rather the one who moves on in spite of failure. Far better it is to dare mighty things to win glorious triumphs, even though checkered by failure, than to take rank with those poor spirits who neither enjoy much nor suffer much, because they live in the gray twilight that knows not victory or defeat. Teddy Roosevelt, himself a failure, a man who got a very late start in life. You see, each one of these men in the Boulevard of Broken Dreams would tell you that more than anything, the important thing is not that you fail. The important thing isn't that you make mistakes or you don't get the big picture, but like Peter, submit yourself to the hand of God. Don't try to figure it out. Don't try to understand everything. Because right now, like Job... You may be going through the winter of your life. We're like the trees every single year. They're stripped down to deadness. And they have no fruit on them. And in fact, in all intents and purposes, you could look at that tree and say, is that tree dead? My friend, there's life in you still. Even if you don't see any sign of it. Job was in the winter of his life. Joseph was in the winter of his life. But you know, in all of it, Job can be my hero. He can be your hero. Because I've talked so far about how Job failed. But how did Job succeed? What did he do right? He didn't give up. He didn't give up. Up until the end. 
He never gave up. He kept questioning. He kept going on. He kept asking. But you know what? He stuck it out. And he hung on by his fingernails. He never did reject God. He never did curse God. He never did the things that maybe in his heart he was tempted to do. He hung on. And God got glory through that. And my friend, don't try to figure it out. None of these men, Joseph, Moses, none of them would have understood for 40 years on the backside of a desert what God was doing. Their life looked over, but you know what? They hung on and they kept worshiping God. God may be silent in your life, but I tell you what, He never really is silent. He never is. There was a famous uh, violinist named Paganini. He was playing once in his concert. And as he was playing this beautiful piece, bink, one of his strings broke. Now he had three. And he kept on playing. He didn't stop. Like maybe you and I would do it. Hold on, i got to start over and get a string and put it on there. And then start playing from the top again. He kept playing. Bink! String two broke. Now he's playing on two. He keeps going. Paganini's the master, see? And then he keeps going. And you guessed it. Bink! He's on one string. He keeps playing that string. And he plays that string like most people couldn't play on four. He plays a beautiful song. And then he's done. And the crowd is just standing there. And when he's done, and he's done bowing, everyone starts to get up, to go. You see, they thought he was over. They thought he was done. No one can play on one string. And all of a sudden, Paganini says, Paganini! And the one the string. And he keeps playing an encore. He keeps going. My friend, no matter what is happening in your life, you may feel you are hanging on by one string this morning. God's not done playing. He's not done making music off your life. And He's going to make something more beautiful than you ever guessed He could out of it. Have faith. Keep going. Regal Theater Church is a smart growth strategy for your church. What? Tell me about this. Yeah. You know, it's funny because your community center, all those things, this is a facility that's right smack dab in the middle of all the traffic. You get the benefits of a space that a movie theater adds. Comfy seats, stage, big overhead screen, let me tell you, Pete Mitchell. And uh, at the end of the day, hey, there's popcorn afterwards. (laughs) It's going to be flowing with traffic after your church service. Why not get in there? Infiltrate public space and learn how to do church in a spot where people are already going. Now, once again, that was corporateboxoffice.com forward slash theater, T-H-E-A-T-R-E dash church. Thanks for joining us for another weekly episode of the Church Planner Podcast with Pete Mitchell and Peyton Jones. We'd love to hear your comments on this episode of the Church Planner Podcast. Visit us online and let us know what you thought at churchplannerpodcast.com. If you subscribe to us via iTunes and have enjoyed the podcast, leave us a positive review. The more positive reviews we receive in iTunes, the more iTunes will promote us to other church planners who would benefit from this show. This podcast is brought to you by the Church Planner Magazine, which is available in the iTunes newsstand or online via churchplannermagazine.com. Music